So many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who, who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know with certainty the things you have been taught. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all of Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to, con to conceive and they were both very old. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of the incense came, all of the assembled worshippers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense, and when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. But an angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to their Lord, their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteousness to make ready to people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I am old, an old man, and my wife is along, along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day happens because you did not believe my words which will come true at their appointed time meanwhile the people waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he had stayed so long in the temple when he came out he could not speak to them they realised he had seen a vision in the temple for he kept making signs to them but remained unable to speak when his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown me his favour and taken away my disgrace amongst the people. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, 
to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel said to her and said, Greetings, you are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at these words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favour with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you will call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come to you and the power of of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth's young relative is going to have a child in her old age. And she who has said to, to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. Thanks, Jason. Hello uh, again. It's, I feel like it's been a while since I've, since I've preached, since I've, I've been up here, and I'm kind of hoping I can remember how to do it. Uh, <laughs> But it's, it's really great to be jumping into the Gospel of Luke together, especially as we, as we journey into Christmas. Uh, just like, like December's just kind of crept up out of nowhere though, hasn't it? Um, the theme for today, what we're looking at is, is certainty, looking at certainty. Um, but the question for you is, I wonder what makes you feel uncertain? What makes you feel uncertain? There's a picture that's going to just pop up on the screen. Um, nothing, nothing makes you feel quite as uncertain as when the person cutting your hair just before beginning, they ask, how are you meant to hold one of these again? <laughs> it's a special kind of uncertainty. This is, this is Georgina. I, I, I asked, have you done this? Have you done this before? And she said, yeah, for my dog, Bonnie. And then, and then we start, no, I think she did, she did a pretty good job. Did a great job, I think. Uh, but this is Georgina. If you haven't met her yet, this is my fiance. I'm still still kind of getting used to saying that. I know it's very exciting. Thank you, thank you. Uh, I asked her about uh, four weeks ago to marry me. She said yes. Uh, but but even even I, yeah, obviously, which is great. Um, even in the in the lead up to asking her though, um, I felt a little bit of uncertainty about whether or not she'd say yes. I didn't didn't have. Heaps of reason to have that uncertainty. Like we've been talking about it, and we've even actually booked a venue for our wedding before this as well. So I should have had the certainty, right? Like I should have had that. But still, for some reason, there's still a voice in my head like, what if she says no? What if she thinks you're booking a birthday party venue or something like But little did I know, she was also feeling uncertain. Um, she reckons it was because I took a little bit longer than she thought I was going to take um, to pop the question. Uh, but c- can you think of a time you felt a little bit uncertain? Maybe moving into a, a big change of life for you. Maybe, maybe that's a, a new school or starting uni. Maybe finishing school. Uh, a few of us here have done that recently. Uh, maybe it's been a new job or a new home. You've moved, you've moved country. 
Maybe you're, maybe you're feeling uncertain about the times that we live in as well. There's a lot going on at the moment. Housing is, is way more difficult to afford. There's sickness that's it's kind of everywhere, uh, both in loved ones and in our own community as well. Uh, there's, there's violence abroad. There's corruption and, and disasters, fire, flooding. And you might be feeling uncertain about what the future holds, given everything that's, that's going on. And maybe, maybe December itself actually is quite a bit of an uncertain time for you. Maybe it's not a particularly enjoyable time. But one of the big things of Luke's gospel that we see this morning in verse 4, as I said before, it's certainty. It should be at the verse that pops up on the screen behind me. Luke writes to Theophilus, who's likely a, a wealthy noble, um, saying that he's written down this account for him, an orderly account, so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. So in an uncertain world, Luke wants Theophilus to have certainty about something. See, it was an uncertain world back then too. The Roman Empire was quite oppressive and there was famine and sickness and violence. And in the background of the beginning of Luke's gospel, there was uncertainty about whether God actually cared about any of it. I think there can be a little bit, a little bit of a notion um, that people really need to struggle their way through to God, that they, that they need to, to rise above the things that are going on in the world and live in a way that's going to kind of get God's attention, make Him happy. And often I think this can result in people just feeling quite bitter against God and very angry because it makes, makes it seem as though God's natural inclination is to shove people away. Now, this morning we read something that shows us that this is not true. See, the Bible, as we read through it, reveals to us this really uh, great story that's unfolding of a good and loving God who looks at those who've actually strayed away from Him and have no way back, and He says, uh, you can't get to me, so I'm going to come after you. As the Bible unfolds, we see the extent of how badly we've actually strayed from God in sin and rejection of Him. We see God's uh, good and just judgment because of it, but we also see the lengths that God is willing to go to in order to save us from it. He's a God who chases after us, who comes after us. This morning we read that Luke wants Theophilus and any who read this uh, to have certainty, but it's not a certainty that's lost to times past. It's a certainty that we can have too in our uncertain times. It's a certainty that actually brings great hope and, and helps us to breathe a big sigh of relief. So we can have certainty that God's big story, His great story, finds its fulfillment in who Jesus is as the one who chases after us. I'll say it again. We can have certainty that God's great story finds its fulfillment in who Jesus is as the one who chases after us to lead us back to God. And that certainty, it brings clarity to this life, despite all our other uncertainties, and it helps us breathe a sigh of relief. And it brings hope for what we can be certain our future holds if we trust in Jesus. Uh, now, it's quite a big reading uh, this morning. There's quite a lot to get through, uh, because Luke drops us in the middle of God's great story. And we have to do some work to figure out what's going on. So we're actually going to be jumping backward and forward a little bit through this passage and through the Bible as well. So I'll try to help you kind of help, help it make sense. Uh, but on, on your outline, you'll see it says about halfway down, if you've got one of those, a promised prophet. And that's where we are now. A promised prophet, he's going to be hanging out here today in this spot. 
Now, I want you to just imagine that it's the biggest day of your career. You've been waiting your, your whole entire life for this opportunity. It's a once-in-a-lifetime thing that not everyone gets to experience, but somehow, seemingly by chance, you have received one of the greatest honours that there is for someone in your career. Now, meet Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah, who we meet in verse 5, should be a few verses on the screen, is a priest of the division of Abijah. Now, this is one of 24 divisions uh, consisting of a total of 18,000 priests. That's a lot of priests. Zechariah is one of them. And we meet his wife, Elizabeth, who herself is a descendant of the very first priest, Aaron. Uh, two people we read who are elderly, and we read in verse 7, who haven't been able to have children. Uh, and they're now old, and, and not just old, we read they're very old, like Zechariah probably should have retired a few years ago, kind of old. And we also read that they are righteous in the sight of God, they walk before Him blamelessly. See, they've devoted their lives to serving God. And the setting that we find Zechariah in is that he is that person receiving one of the greatest honours of his career. That's what we're reading in verse 8 to 10. See, every day there was a morning and evening sacrifice in the temple, and Zechariah's division of priests, two weeks of the year, only for two weeks of every year, would have performed this sacrifice. And as part of this, while the Israelite people were praying outside the temple, and we read in verse 10, uh, the chosen priest would go into the temple and burn incense to the Lord. Now, the smoke of which going up would, would represent the prayers of intercession going up from the people who are praying outside. And Zechariah, he's chosen by lot, by, by chance, or so we think, so we read in verse 9. Priests, they might get this opportunity, might get this opportunity once in their lifetime, but it was, it was only allowed to happen once, and not to every priest. So imagine very old Zechariah, it's never been him before being chosen to go into the temple on behalf of the people, the highest honour of his career. Now, so we'll be jumping around a little bit, so I'm just going to head over here, okay? Now, the promised prophets over there, here, we have a promised son. Now, five, five months after the events that we read uh, about Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth, over there, uh, we read about someone who was on the complete opposite side of the spectrum, at least in some respects, See, Mary is a young woman, perhaps about 15 years old, which, which 2,000 years ago was the time you would seek to get married, the time you'd start a family. And Zechariah and Elizabeth, they're very old, Mary is young. So there's a young woman, she's just been engaged to marry Joseph, who we read is a descendant of King David. It's important information to tuck away. Now, we read that Mary is a virgin as well, so important information to tuck away. She lives in Nazareth, a town in Galilee. Now, Mary also is about to embark on probably the biggest event of her life so far. She's leaving mother and father and siblings and being married to Joseph. She's about to start a new family. Now, think of all that wedding planning. 
Mary and Joseph, they have invites to send out venues to hire. Maybe they've hired them already, though. Uh, a catering company to find. There's that awkward family member as well who Mary's just trying to figure out how to say that they can't bring their weird date along to the weddings. Oh, a bit awkward. Joseph, he still hasn't organised the suits with his groomsmen. He keeps telling people the wrong date for the wedding. Like, there's a lot going on. But, but we read in the, in the midst of this, in a time of great change and probably a lot of uncertainty and excitement, But Mary's just minding her own business when suddenly an angel appears. Now we're going to pause there. Back to the promised prophet. Uh, So there Zechariah is just minding his own business. He's burning incense as as the people outside the temple are praying, taking part in what is probably one of the high points of his career. Now, what those prayers may have entailed, that the people were praying outside, we can't be 100% certain. But I imagine they would have had a lot to do with the uncertain time that they were living in. Uh, The Roman Empire had conquered the known world and life was not the easiest under them. Uh, One foot put out of line and the Roman legion would descend, not really caring who they killed to bring back order. There were taxes, unfair taxes and corrupt tax collectors. We We get to meet a couple of them later on in Luke. There's also sickness and famine and there's lots of violence. It's a very uncertain time. You kind of imagine and think that maybe one of those prayers may have included something like this, saying, God, we know you have promised to come and save us. We know you've promised to send someone to to show us what is happening. We know you have promised to send us a king to deliver us. And Lord, we are aching for that time when the king arrives. Maybe you're sitting here and you've prayed something similar. See, many would have been praying for the redemption, for the salvation of the Israelite people. But none of them, including Zechariah and Elizabeth, would have guessed at how God was about to answer both their prayers and the prayers of Elizabeth and Zechariah, that they they probably had stopped praying a long time ago, now being very old. Prayers for a child of their own. Back to a promised son. I said at the, at the beginning that in the Bible we see God's great story unfolding. Well, long before Zechariah and Elizabeth and Mary and Joseph were around, uh, King David, who I think pretty much all of us would know who King David is, right? He sat upon his throne in Jerusalem. He'd just become king over all of Israel, had moved into his new palace in Jerusalem. And it was a big change of life for David, from battles and hiding in caves to the throne room in Jerusalem. The uncertainty that he faced in those times was enormous. But David, he sat there thinking on his throne, why should I live in a house like this while God doesn't have one? I'm going to build a house for God. And God hears this and he goes, no, 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 David, calm down. Let me tell you what I'm going to do. Read this in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 9 to 14. A bit of a big chunk to read once on the screen behind me. God says this, I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men on earth, and I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. 
and goes on, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. See, in the background of the oppression of Rome and of sickness and poverty and famine and violence and uncertainty, the Israelites have in their minds this promise. God would give a king to Israel from the line of David who would be God's son, his own son. He would provide a place for the Israelites where they would have peace and rest, where there would be no more wickedness or oppression, and this would go on forever. This is what they are waiting for. This is their great hope that God would send someone to save them. But first, God would send a messenger or a promised prophet. See, the nation of Israel had fallen far since the days of King David, very far. And it wasn't because God hadn't fulfilled his words to them. It was because the Israelites did what humanity does best, did what we do best, and strayed away from God, seeking to do life without him. God, in his great mercy, did not cut the Israelites off, as was well within his rights, as our God. Instead, he makes a promise in the very last book of the Old Testament. The last book of the Old Testament is Malachi. In the last couple of verses, God, God says this. It should be up on the screen. God says... See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. Or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. You see, judgment will come, but mercy and grace is coming too. Now, the, the prophet Elijah had already actually come to the Israelites. As a prophet you can read about in the book of 1 Kings. And Elijah called the people of Israel to repentance, which means he called them to turn away from living in rejection of God to turning back to God instead of straying away from Him. Now, that Elijah had been and gone, but God here is promising that He would send another Elijah to come to His people to again turn them back to Him. But this time it would be a bit different. Zechariah stands in the temple burning incense and an angel appears. And like any normal person would feel, Zechariah is startled and he's afraid. Uh, see, whenever an angel appeared in the Old Testament, it's, it's pretty big news. So this, this is not surprising. Someone suddenly appearing who was not expecting. Zechariah uh, is an old man. What could be about to come his way? He's like, oh, now. But the angel says this. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. Uh, John means God has been gracious. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. And we read this in verse 16. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah 
to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. What is happening here? The angel is saying that this is it. That prophet God promised is coming. And that prophet is Zechariah's son who is yet to be born. He will be a joy and delight for Zechariah and Elizabeth. And he will bring many to rejoice. See, God is answering the Israelites' prayers who are praying outside the temple. And the way he is doing that is through answering a prayer that Zechariah and Elizabeth would have prayed years and years ago. They would have a child. And this son would do what Elijah the prophet did, calling people to repent, to turn back to the Lord. And why? We read it at the end of verse 17. It's to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Uh, Do you you have a kind of a memory of being on, on school camp or being at an event with lots of different people and lunchtime is approaching, right? Lunchtime's approaching and there are lots of different distractions. There's people to talk to, games to play, naps to be had. Someone who's been involved in different camps, at this point in time, uh, you notice that people have wandered really far and wide away from where they're meant to be. So, so what do you do? Pick up one of these guys. You start ringing a bell. And soon, swarms of people who've been waiting for their food, they just kind of start to appear and start to come close to the sound of the bell. See, what we're reading in the passage this morning is that John, later referred to as John the Baptist, he's the bell that God picks up to start ringing. And as this bell rings out, people are called from far and wide to come and be filled, uh, not with lunch, but with joy, because the king they have been waiting for is coming. And the response that he will be calling them to do is to repent, to turn back to God's to turn to a promised son. See, the same angel has appeared to Zechariah uh, over here, appears to Mary and says, Greetings, you who are highly favoured, the Lord is with you. And Mary understandably has the same response as Zechariah. She's troubled, she wonders what, what on earth is about to happen here. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, you have found favour with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. This should jog our memories, right? God promised this in 2 Samuel chapter 7 to King David, the ancestor of Joseph. But Mary asks, she asks a very good question. Um, how will this be? Mary asked the angel, since, since I am a virgin. And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. The King of the line of David, the Son of God, sitting upon an eternal throne, ruling over God's people for, for eternity, forever, for an eternity of rest. The promises God made all those years ago have come in the form of two baby boys, one who would be great and a messenger to prepare the way, the other who would be yet greater, the greatest, and who would save God's people 
forever. Can I move back again? Thank you. Now, we've jumped backward and forward quite a lot this morning. You may be feeling a bit like you have whiplash. Because there's a lot to unpack in these verses here. But what I, what I hope you've seen is how Luke, who wrote this gospel, he sets up the beginning of, of the book of Luke by helping us see that Jesus' birth is part of a story that's been unfolding all throughout history and all according to God's plan and His promises. It's something the Israelites were waiting for. See, Luke seeks to give certainty to his readers, certainty to us, and this certainty is that God's great story finds its fulfillment in Jesus, the one who chased after us when we were lost from God. Uh, is Jesus really the Son of God? That's the, this is the question we have from the beginning of Luke's account. And Luke, from the outset, he says, yes, it is. He's the guy everyone's been waiting for. See, Luke helps us see that everything has been leading to him. And he wants his readers to understand this. Which is why he doesn't start in the place that other Gospels do. Instead, he starts with the birth of the messenger that God promised would come to prepare people for his son's arrival. His son Jesus, whose names we, we don't even hear the name Jesus until verse 31. And from here, Luke sets about showing us that Jesus, he really is that promised king. And he shows us that we really can have certainty, really can have confidence. And that we can have hope and joy in an uncertain time, just like the Israelites did. Because Jesus didn't come to save one people in one time from one enemy. Jesus came to save all who believe in him for all of time from the greatest enemy, sin and death. Right at the end of Luke's gospel, after Luke recounts how Jesus died on the cross and then rose again three days later, recounts how Jesus is with his followers. While Jesus is with them, he says this, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Hopefully it's on the screen. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me, in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the Scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah, which means anointed or chosen king, will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, what he'd just done, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. The same witnesses and eyewitnesses that Luke spent time with and was friends with. Everything in the Bible, it all points towards Jesus. And Jesus wants everyone to understand that he is the promised king who suffered, died and rose again. So that people everywhere, so that you could be forgiven for your sin. So that you could be brought back to God. And the response called for by Jesus, the response that is set up for us, right in the very first chapter, is to repent, to turn away from living a life of rejection of God and turning to Jesus, believing that He is the one who can save you from sin and the judgment of God. Not you, not anyone else. And in these verses today, we see different responses to what the angel says is happening, don't we? We see Zechariah doesn't actually believe him. And the consequences of that is that Zechariah can't speak. He's just seen an angel, he's just heard amazing news, but he can't tell anyone about what has happened. Then there's Elizabeth, who falls pregnant after this and recognises God's hand in what has happened. 
despite Zechariah's disbelief, and she praises God for it. And then there is Mary, who responds with a willingness and a desire to do what God um, has told her to do. Because she recognises the grace and favour of her God and what this all means. See, three people living in an uncertain time who respond to the hope held out by God in different ways. And we're left with the question, how do we respond to that hope that is being held out? Is it belief in Jesus or is it, is it rejection of Jesus? Luke has carefully investigated everything around Jesus' birth, life, death and resurrection. He's spoken to the eyewitnesses who were there, to the apostles, Jesus' followers, who were there from start to finish. People who, when Luke's account was written, uh, could have chased it up if they wanted to, to, to check it out for themselves. The evidence was there. Now, you might be, you might be here and be thinking, but all, all my life, I haven't followed Jesus. I've been saying no to him. Or all my life, I've just been, I've been really struggling to follow him. This is, this is really difficult. He couldn't, he couldn't want me, right? My debt is too high. The angel Gabriel reminds Zechariah of this promise of, of the coming prophet that we, that we read of in Malachi, uh, chapter, chapter 4. We read this, He will turn the hearts of parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. Now, children generally follow in their parents' footsteps. That's been the case for, for all of us, the people who raised us. Uh, we follow in their footsteps, we learn from them. Um, kids often want to be like their parents when they're young. They mirror their parents in most ways, even later on in life, and they might find this difficult that this is the case for them. But what this is getting at, I think, is that all of us are shaped by the patterns of this world and those who are a footstep in front of us. That's what we're kind of seeing happening there. Uh, but such is the way that Jesus changes things. The patterns of this world that, that lead away from God no longer have power. See, children would, would turn to Jesus. They wouldn't follow the pattern and the footsteps of their times, footsteps of their parents. Children would turn to Jesus. Their hearts transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit, who is so evident throughout this chapter, and who is at work in their hearts, and who turns their hearts to Jesus to follow him. And the parents of those children would look at what is happening in their lives, see the change in their hearts, and they would say, I want that. I want Jesus. Not the promises that this world holds out, but never delivers on. See, Jesus calls us, all of us, no matter how far we have strayed, no matter for how long, no matter for how, how long we follow the patterns of this world away from God, Jesus calls us to turn to him because he is a loving saviour who has chased you into this world to save you. We read those who are disobedient. They will look and see the wisdom of the righteous. That means they'd turn, they'd see the fear and love of the Lord that others have, not because they're better than anyone else, but because those people have turned to Jesus and found forgiveness and life. And the certainty of eternity on the other side of death, others would see this, do see this today, and would think, I want that too. I need Jesus too. And they would turn, repent and believe and follow their king. 
If you're here and haven't done that yet, you can, you can do it right now. I'd love to talk to you about it. I'd love to answer questions you have if you're not quite there yet. Please don't leave that to yourself. You can do it right now. By turning to Jesus, saying sorry for your sin, and putting your trust in him. This passage speaks of great renewal from the outset, great change coming in that society back then, but it's change we see today, don't we? I mean, we exist as a church because of what happened all those years ago, because of what Jesus has done, because our hearts have been turned to him. See, Zechariah, finally, uh, when John is born, he becomes one of those parents whose hearts are turned to their child. He can speak again, and he says, "'Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel,' because he has come to his people and redeemed them. We're coming into one of the busiest times of the year, right, the lead up to Christmas, and it's a time where we pretty easily lose sight of what this whole thing is about. But God's great story finds its fulfilment in a baby to be born, and we are welcomed into that story. We can have certainty in an uncertain world because of who that baby grows up to be. And this month, I pray that this helps many of us to breathe a sigh of relief as our focus is shifted from the uncertainty of life to the love of our God. And I pray that for others, it means turning for the very first time at the news of a Saviour to trusting in Him for life, for eternal life, for reconciliation with the God who loves you. There is no other name in heaven or on earth through whom we are redeemed. We're going to sing those words. In just a moment, I'm going to invite the band up as I pray. Let me lead us in prayer. Well, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. Oh Lord God, we praise you for how you have chosen to act toward us out of your great mercy and grace in sending your son into this world. Thank you that we are welcomed into your great story, Lord of redemption, of salvation from sin. Pray for all of us, Lord, to look to your son, Jesus, and remember always that life is found in him and him alone, not in the promises of this world. That hope and joy and peace will only be found in him. Amen. Uh, well, as you're able, would you please stand? Let's respond in, in song.